You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, April 4th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis, authors of The Captured Economy, How the Powerful Enrich Themselves, Slow Down Growth, and Increase Inequality. Larry Lessig, Roy L. Furman, Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School, moderated. Sent to the authors, and their response was, bring us to Harvard and we'll answer your questions. So here they are, um, and I'll have my questions at the end. Um, but what, the way we're going to lay this out is that, Stephen, are you going to go first? I'll go first. So Drink will go first, and then Stephen will speak. And um, I'll ask a couple questions, then we'll open up pretty quickly to the audience for other questions. Uh, but so, um, Brink, um, Great. So our division of labor, I'll talk about what's gone wrong, and he'll talk about how it, how it went wrong. Uh, so uh, our book uh, deals with uh, two major problems afflicting the U.S. economy in the 21st century, slow growth and high inequality and the combination of the two, um, how they interact. Um, slow growth. Uh, Average annual growth rate in inflation-adjusted GDP per capita uh, was 2% throughout the 20th century. It's 1% so far throughout the 21st century. So growth rate has fallen in half. Uh, That's a big deal. Um, When uh, the economy is growing uh, at 2% a year, then the economy will uh, basically double twice over the course of a normal person's lifetime. Uh, When it's growing at 1% a year, the economy will double once over the course of a normal person's lifetime. So... Uh, people born around 2000, uh, hitting their senior years, will uh, will hit an economy half as big as it would have been if uh, growth, uh, 20th century growth rates had been maintained. Meanwhile, the inequality story we all know about, the, the, what growth there is, the benefits of thereof have been skewed towards a, a progressively more narrow uh, section of folks at the top. Put those two things together, slow growth and high inequality, and you get uh, declines in absolute mobility, that is in people doing better than their parents. Um, uh, the, according to Raj Chetty's breakthrough research, uh, people born in 1940, uh, 90% of them were doing better, uh, the men were doing better than dad by age 30. People born in 1970, it's only 50% doing better than dad by age 30. On election night 2016, uh, uh, Americans told exit pollsters that only 30% of them thought that their kids would be better off than them. Um, that kind of pessimism, I think, goes along with the kind of politics that we experienced on election night 2016. Uh, so the, the stakes here are not only uh, economic but political. Um, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a lot of things going on to explain why growth is slowing down and why its uh, fruits are being distributed more unequally. There are big structural forces at work, and we don't deny that, there, that those uh, are, uh, are in existence. But uh, we tell another part of the story, uh, which is how government policies, and particularly government regulatory policies, have actively contributed uh, to both problems. Uh, this is, uh, sounds counterintuitive. We think of this era of the last, you know, this past generation, the last three, four decades, as the neoliberal era, the era of deregulation and sort of free markets. And, uh, and so if we're having accumulating problems, then maybe that's the cause of free markets run amok or insufficient regulatory activity. And there, you can tell that story uh, in certain respects, but we have a different story to tell, and that is how actual increases in regulatory activity captured by privileged insiders uh, have contributed both to economic sclerosis and to uh, increasing inequality. Uh, in finance, uh, we've seen uh, over the past generation the invention, the government invention and, and launching of the securitization industry, which then ultimately came to grief 10 years ago. 
Uh, we've seen uh, a, a sequence of, uh, of bailouts propping up what we consider to be a, a, an inviable business model of reliance on extreme leverage uh, by financial institutions. Uh, but that system has been propped up again and again uh, by interventions uh, by the feds until uh, everything came unglued uh, in 2008. And then they tried their best to put everything back together again and perpetuate the same model going forward with only minor cosmetic tweaks. Uh, in intellectual property, uh, there's been a huge increase in uh, the scope of copyright law, uh, both because it now it, uh, pertains to, uh, to everything, not just uh, published material, not just registered material. It pertains to everything. The terms of copyright have expanded dramatically from 56 years back in the 70s to life of the author plus 70 years uh, today. Uh, on patents, the, uh, the scope of uh, patentable invention, inventions and the standards for patenting uh, are both uh, have expanded and declined respectively. Uh, as a result, about five times as many patents are handed out every year by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office uh, as, were, as was the case 30 years ago. So an enormous expansion of patents. Um, occupational licensing is another one of our case studies uh, there. Uh, back in 1970, about 10% of people worked in jobs that uh, required government per permission before you could do that job. Now it's between 25 and 30%, uh, a huge expansion in the number of occupations that are subject to licensing. Meanwhile, the traditionally licensed uh, 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 professions, medicine and lawyering, have used that kind of stranglehold uh, uh, and their privileged position uh, to... Uh, uh, to capture other policy-making processes to their benefit, uh, especially in the healthcare field by the medical profession. Uh, zoning uh, is our uh, final um, case study. So we look at two areas of federal policy and two at state, state and local uh, policy. Zoning, there has been, especially on the coasts, uh, increasing restrictiveness of, of rules governing when new housing can be built uh, have opened up huge gaps between uh, what should be market prices for housing and what the actual market price, pr pricing is. Uh, this regulatory tax, as calculated by Harvard economist Ed Glazer, uh, is about 20% in D.C., uh, about 30% in L.A. and Oakland, uh, about 50% in Manhattan, San Francisco, and San Jose. Uh, so big expansions in regulatory activity in each of these areas. Privileged insiders have sort of captured the policymaking process and, and have done so in a way that stymies uh, competition by blocking uh, uh, outsiders who can, uh, who can bring down prices and bring up output, uh, and done so in a way that redistributes income up the socioeconomic scale. Um, you can get down into the weeds of each one of these policy domains. Don't have the time to do that, uh, but uh, here, uh, do chapter by chapter in the book. Uh, but if you sort of back up to 30,000 feet and put on a time-lapse camera, what you'll see over the past generation is choke points in the, uh, in the economy, in the present-day economy, that are being identified and exploited by privileged insiders uh, to their benefit at the expense of all the rest of us. So precisely at the same time uh, that, uh, that the main corporate assets went from being physical plant and equipment to being ideas and know-how uh, and incorporeal, at that same time, we had this dramatic expansion in intellectual property monopolies so that uh, the owners of this incorporeal assets could, uh, could wring as uh, many rents out of them as possible. At the same time that we've seen economic activity concentrating in 
big cities on the coasts that have lots of college grads living in close proximity to each other. At that exact same time, when all this economic activity is getting concentrated there, NIMBYs in those coastal cities have uh, rigged things uh, to deny uh, access of the rest of the country to move there and find jobs there uh, and cash in on what's going on there uh, because of exorbitant housing prices. Uh, <clears throat> at the precise time that the combination of mass affluence and technological advances have produced for more health care than we can afford, and therefore the need for trade-offs. Um, uh, the medical profession's capture of the, uh, specifically the reimbursement process, has ensured that fee-for-service medicine, which was built based on an era where medicine really didn't do that much good, uh, was perpetuated into the current era, uh, resulting in enormous uh, 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 excesses of spending uh, by us and uh, artificially heightened incomes for them. Uh, and as a result of these sort of <coughs> choke points being choked off by uh, politically savvy insiders, we are left in our current economy with massive misallocations of resources. Um, first, the financial sector. Uh, there's a lot of economic research that shows how financial sectors in less developed countries can be too small, uh, that, they, that they can't do the work of allocating capital from people uh, who have money to people who have good ideas. Uh, they can't marshal savings effectively. So financial sectors can definitely be too small. Uh, newer research is showing that in advanced economies, financial sectors can be too big, that they, uh, they suck away talent uh, from more productive areas into this area. They, uh, they devote uh, too much resources uh, to, uh, to trading uh, existing assets rather than building anything new. Uh, so they're... Uh, we have, uh, it seems, uh, a much too large financial sector, and we are suffering as a result. Um, we have a huge misallocation of our population. There should be a lot more people living on the coasts than there are. Uh, and if there were, our uh, economic output would be much higher, and we would be much less unequal than we are today. Uh, uh, and uh, finally, um, uh, the uh, we've had... Uh, because of the medical profession's ability to, to capture the reimbursement process. We have exorbitant spending levels on health care, much higher than anywhere else in the world. And calculations show that somewhere between a third and a half of all health care spending is, is wasted. So uh, during this era when we thought we were at the end of history and our system had triumphed over the radical alternatives of socialism, it turned out and no one was really paying any attention to, to structural problems in our economy. We had lots of fights over tax policy and over sort of welfare policies and social insurance policies, but no fights about the sort of the engines of growth and whether they were malfunctioning or not. And during this time of complacency where we thought we had figured all that out, it turns out that uh, rent-seeking special interests have, like termites, uh, dug into the structures of our economy uh, and done a lot of degradation. Uh, and uh, my colleague will explain how they did it. So, um, again, the phenomenon we're looking at, if you look at all the cases that Brink um, just discussed, um, they all have one political thing in common, um, which is massively um, unbalanced representation and involvement in the political process, right? That when we think about regulation in the book, we just sharply distinguish between two kinds of regulation, right? When you think about uh, things like in the environment or occupational safety and health kind of regulations, right? 
in all those areas, but it goes to what you think of them, right? Both sides are pretty heavily armed up, right? If we're going to have a change in most environmental regulations, right? Somebody, you know, a bunch of people from the environment are gonna, environmentalists are going to show up, and a bunch of people from from, um, uh, from industry are going to show up, right? And they fight out, and whoever wins. And those are also highly partisan, right? That is, Republicans generally on the side of industry and Democrats on the side of the environment, right? Almost none of the cases that Brink just described look like that, right? Um, they're all characterized by relatively suppressed um, partisanship, right? They're not well part uh, divided by party, which uh, we often talk about partisanship as a problem, but in this case, um, it actually might be a kind of solution because it would ensure at least a minimal level of conflict around, um, around an issue, right? Um, so there's a massively dis, um, unbalanced organization, right? Lots of people in, in intellectual property. Larry and I were talking about this before. If you go and look at the, the, uh, the battles that Larry was fighting um, back in the day, right? There were lots of people from the, uh, the movie industry and all kinds of other parts in intellectual property and literally almost nobody on the other side, right? If you look at zone, the zoning decisions that Brink talked about, right? Huge numbers of people who don't want anything built and almost nobody on the other side when, um, when jurisdictions are making zoning decisions and you can kind of go right down the line. So what explains that, right? Well, at least in the areas we're talking about, the important thing, that especially that connects the, this particular kind of regulation um, and uh, politics of it is the basic incentives for organizations. So our book starts out at least with Olson's classic um, discussion and the logic of collective action and then, and then builds some things onto it, right? So with Olson, we believe that democracy is fundamentally the rule of the organized, right? Um, democracy is uh, outcomes are determined by who shows up, right? Um, because the organized are better able to aggregate their strength as individuals into concentrated power, that is to take that latent energy and actually focus it in a strategic way onto political actors. They're better able to develop a coherent understanding of their interests, right? So concentrated interests, people who can, you know, have people out there doing this all the time, can actually figure out how to take those latent interests and turn them into well-understood um, uh, policy action. They're able to engage in surveillance of office holders, which in all the cases we're talking about is extremely important. Policymakers pay attention to those who pay attention to them. And when you have organization, you're able to, um, to engage in surveillance. You're able to see what policymakers are able to do. And policymakers are aware you're watching, and they engage in action in advance of that, right? Finally, organization allows you to develop persuasive fictions that mask the pursuit of interest in politics, right? In all the cases that we were talking about before, there's a kind of mask of the public interest that's covering up rent-seeking, right? Policymakers in almost none of these cases go to go, sorry, rent-seekers don't go to policymakers and just say, hey, it's a holdup, right? Hand over the loot, right? They say, oh, well, we're helping creators, right? Um, we're helping allocate capital, right? We're preventing people from being harmed by unscrupulous uh, providers, right? We're protecting, you know, neighborhood values or whatever, right? Um, uh, so the first part of the story about why we've got the pattern of, um, of unbalanced representation that aggregates up to the policies that Brink is talking about is there's something broken in the basic machinery of organization, right? Organization is also not neutral by social class. Work by Verba, Schlossman, and Brady, which is very important. 
is showing that there's a massive social class imbalance in who actually gets um, represented, who actually is organized, right? So the advantage, those with educational qualifications, social networks, income are much more likely to organize for their interests than the disadvantaged, right? And in addition to money, they have all kinds of other advantages that less ad uh, advantaged people don't have, right? Their interests are much more likely to seem sophisticated or public interested, whereas it's a lot easier to imagine those who are in sort of, you know, grubby little occupations is not really having, you know, high, you know sort of highfalutin justifications for their use of the regulatory uh, process, right? So in our story, what the organized in almost all these cases want is to preserve their existing status, right? If all the cases that Brink was talking about, that's the main ask that rent seekers have. They have some status and they want to preserve it, right? So while economists um, and people like us like creative destruction, the organized don't, right? That's why they organize, right? And in fact, well, there's good political science that shows most interest group organization comes after the existence of some policy, not in advance of it, right? That is, people get something, they get some kind of protection, and then they go and they organize a large constituency um, behind it, right? That's true of not just of farming and manufacturing, like we know, but it's true of, again, people who have an, uh, who have an occupation that's protected from entry. It's true of finance that has regulations that preserve their status. All those people have a deal and they want to, they want to protect it. So the consequence of that, once you get that accumulation of organization designed to lock in social status, um, is one thing that produces is excess profits, right? Those excess profits then are available in part to be redistributed back into the, um, the political process. So that even further entrenches or extends many of these regulatory regimes, while at the same time, there's almost none of those organizational incentives on the other side. Right? And so in the absence of something to break into this process, over time you're going to see um, economic sclerosis as you get less creative destruction, and you're going to see even more protection of rent at the top, which produces greater inequality. So if that's all the case, really briefly, what do you do about it? In the book, we describe rent-seeking as, in part, best understood as a breakdown of effective deliberation, right? Political deliberation requires conflict. Conflict is the basic motor of deliberation. It's not an um, alternative to it, right? It's only when there's actual conflict, when there's two sides actively bringing information, bringing ideas to the uh, view of policymakers, that actual deliberation actually occurs. In the absence of that, it's easy for policymakers simply to engage in exchange relationships with organized interests. So how do you break that? One is you subsidize countervailing power, right? Um, so again, if the problem is that there isn't organization on the other side, right, one thing you can do is you can subsidize the existence of it. In the book, we talk about examples of this, right? If you think about the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s, some of that was people just getting up and saying, hey, let's, you know, let's put on a show, right? But it was also large foundations that were actively subsidizing all of the major environmental groups in their sort of germinal stages when they were just trying to get organized, and that helped create the pluralistic political environment we have around environmental issues, which we don't have on these other regulatory issues, right? More recently, you've seen something similar in the politics of school reform, right? Again, people are going to disagree about the substance of these, but in the politics of school reform, one thing we saw is, in many cases, unions were the only people who were showing up 
in school board meetings, right? They were the only ones who policymakers thought they had to pay attention to. And we've seen the subsidization by large foundations, again, um, of countervailing power so that there's multiple different groups who are showing up when decisions about school reform are being made. The second thing is that we can actually increase the internal power of the state. One thing that we argue in the book is, in almost all of these cases, policymakers are highly dependent on the very rent-seeking interests that they're regulating for information about what the public interest um, is around these areas, right? And increasingly, we've been starving policymakers of those informational capacities they need to make decisions, right? This is most sharply evident in Congress, where we've actually cut uh, congressional staff. We haven't, we still haven't created a real serious alternative to the patronage structure that we use for congressional staff. And so it's not surprising that policymakers don't really have the information to push back when um, they're being presented with often biased information, right? The final thing, I think this is uh, something that we, we spent a lot of time arguing about, um, is what we uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, uh, probably more tongue-in-cheek for me than for Brink, call egalitarian Lochnerism, right? There's at least some cases where um, uh, it would be a really good idea not to have the kind of deferential approach to regulation that starts back really in the New Deal, right? In many cases, we argue not for sort of overall general constitutional uh, bans on government in involvement, but there's many things governments can do or courts can do, do uh, to require more deliberation, right? Um, that is being less deferential, for example, in occupational licensing to licensing boards, right? That is to make licensing boards have to go back to legislatures where, um, where there's any ambiguity about whether they have legitimate uh, authority. Those are all things that could sort of force policy, make, force special interests to have to defend their, uh, their positions, force more information into the process, and create more of the kind of conflict that might um, uh, create at least some countervailing power to the processes we talk about. So that's great. Um, I, and again, I um, really strongly recommend the book because it is the most comprehensive uh, effort to pull together the argument about how interventions are creating the inequality and the slowness. Um, we have other books that, that talk about the failure to intervene causing inequality and uh, the slowness of economic growth. But I think this part of the story is really critical and I don't think anybody else has put it together like you have. I want to question you on one dimension of the structure of incentives of dependence, which you have so nicely identified. So, I mean, as you've just explained, uh, Stephen, part of the problem here is you've got representatives who are not independent enough um, to make decisions that are actual decisions in the public interest. They're, they're not independent because they don't have the information or they're dependent on interested people for the information. Um, and in that cycle, it's hard for them to step up and do something separate. Another point that uh, researchers about lobbying have made quite effectively is the presence of lobbying shifts the budget constraints of what people are willing to work on. Because if you, you know, go to Washington and you think, I care about welfare reform and I care about IP policy, and then you open your door on day one, you've got 10 lobbyists about IP policy offering you everything from studies to polls to conferences that you can learn about it. 
you still could have an interest in welfare policy, but you're going to spend all your time doing IP policy because that's where you're getting the real support. So I think this part of the story is really critical. But the part that I have pushed you on is one element of this dependence is the funding element. And I'm not talking about the way campaign spending affects the voters. That's a separate question. I'm talking about the way the dependence on raising money creates its own distortion in this process. So lobbyists don't give so much money themselves, but lobbyists are at the center of steering how all sorts of money gets flow, flows into the system. And members become very sensitive, as some of the really great lobbying research recently has demonstrated, very sensitive to the ways in which they got to keep certain people happy to assure the continual flow of money into their campaign. So what struck me about the book, as I was saying, huzzah, huzzah, huzzah at every chapter, is I thought, well, there's a missing chapter here about the effect of money in politics. Because you know you say a little bit about it, but you don't say as much as it feels to me like it's there. So, so I'll take a crack at it and Brink and decide whether I went far enough. Um, so we are, I think both, both Brink and I are campaign finance reform skeptics. So we should say that. And there's two reasons for that. So one, when people say money in politics, the first thing people think of is people giving money to politicians for campaigns, right? But the, uh, the amount of money that's spent on lobbying is far in excess of the amount that's spent on campaigns, right? So uh, when you think about where the money in politics problem is, right, I think both of us think the money in politics problem is probably more acute on the side of the actual generation of policy information, right? Because most of what policy, what lobbyists do, as you know, right, is not, they're not twisting people's arms, right? They're engaged in information exchange, right? And again, that information exchange is hugely imbalanced, right? Again, his work by Frank Baumgartner and his colleagues has shown you don't need complete balance in that process, right? But there's a big difference between nothing and a lot and a little and a lot, right? Even just a little, in some cases, is enough to give policymakers awareness that there's multiple different claims on the public interest, right? And just that thing can make a big difference. Now, so our, our view is, I think, one, that um, it's likely to be looking in the wrong place. So when you're focusing on campaign finance, you're directing people to where um, there's a problem, but it's not the biggest problem. It's not the main thing. Now, I personally think campaign finance matters more, and it feeds back into information because it affects the budgeting of members' time, right? So it's not that it's biasing them in one side or the other, right? But the amount of time that they can devote to information gathering and understanding issues is swallowed up by the fact that um, they have to spend so much time raising money, right? And so if they had less, they would have more time for committee work, for more time for learning, more time to, for talking to, to, to staff and educating themselves on the issue. Now, I think that points in a somewhat different direction, right? Maybe the same, the same as what some people are called. But I don't think it's mainly that campaign finance creates a bias in itself, creates a bias toward particular kinds of interest, as it takes away people's um, time and energy and effort, right? Um, and so that's where I would focus more on how do we increase the amount of time that policymakers can spend educating themselves on the issue and the range of issues on which they can spend that okay, time. Okay, but let me, let's just engage exactly on that because there's, there's two parts to this that I, that I think you're undercounting. So you're right that more money is spent on lobbying than is spent on giving, candidate, uh, giving to candidates. But the relevant question is how much does it hurt the candidate? 
for each of these kinds of spending. So the candidate doesn't raise the money for the lobbyist. He doesn't worry about that. He or she worries about the fact he's spending 30 to 70% of his or her time raising money. So if I'm spending that much time raising money and you come in and you're a reliable source of $100,000, that's really significant, even though $100,000 is a tiny fraction of the total amount of lobbying budget that a certain firm might have inside of Washington. So the first thing is just to the relevant actor, what's the significance of it? And the second part of that is if you're spending 30 to 70% of your time talking to a tiny fraction of the relevant public. I gotta learn to make you happy and I know who you are. You are people who are on Wall Street or the lawyers or whatever. Then my, I, even without realizing it, I become very sensitive to how to be responsive to you in a way that's not measured by the amount of money that you're giving me or the amount of money that is going on Wall Street and the, uh, um, is going into lobbying firms. And these two dimensions, it seems to me, from the perspective you brought here about what's the economy of influence, are really highly significant, not instead of the things you've talked about, because I agree with everything you've talked about, too. I just think in the story, to make it complete, understanding the psychology of this fundraising is a critical part, uh, and also a pretty cheap part to solve, because for the same reason you've just identified, the small amount of money, a small amount of government money could actually liberate them from a huge part of this dynamic and allow them to go do the stuff that you want them to do, which is to learn and to, and to deliberate. I'll just uh, make our stock defense, which is our book is not a theory of everything. Uh, <laughs> it does not tackle and solve all human problems. Uh, and in particular, our focus is on problems that other people aren't talking about very much. Uh, and angles of a problem that people see the problem, but we're looking at an angle that other people haven't looked at. So. Uh, the angle of money in politics is not a new angle. That is one that people have been obsessing about and fighting about for, for decades now. And we've had waves of regulatory activity that seem to play a game of whack-a-mole and have not produced, uh, like, <clears throat> despite uh, various waves of campaign finance regulation, we don't seem to be much better off for it. Maybe in some ways or even in a more, a more messed up situation than, than we were before. So, so we just want, we just said, okay, that conversation is out there. Let's start a new conversation. And the new conversation is in all of these discussions and genuine worries about policymakers sort of under assault from special interests, all the attention has gone to disarming the assaulters, uh, taking away their money. Uh, so, our, so let's talk about something new. Let's talk about fortifying the decision makers to give them the information they have and make them cognitively independent in a way that, uh, that but, so, but we grant. We don't solve all problems here, but, but we wanted to shed light on, a, on a, what we think is a really important part of the problem uh, and maybe a more tractable part of the problem that gets almost zero. Right, right. I think uh, one thing to note is what we're also looking for are solutions where everyone isn't already sort of really well armed up on either side, right? Where people don't know exactly where they are. That is congressional capacity, which is something we talk about a lot. It's something that isn't as thoroughly polarizes campaign finance, right? That, you know, now, there may be ways to think about how to organize campaign finance that might be less polarized, but nobody has figured out how to depolarize that conversation, in part, you know, because, um, you know, both parties have very substantial kind of ideological identity they build around those issues, and they have a pretty clear sense of where they think their interests lie. Um, and for, th for that reason, I think that's why we've decided to sort of, you know, to, to leave that aside. Now, I do think, you know, that 
the position we have on our side is more spending, right, um, on lobbying, but spending by other countervailing interests, whether it's inside the state or outside the state. And there's probably a, probably a pretty good example of the same thing in campaign finance. Try, you know, ways to stand in front of the, the wave generally don't seem to have worked, right? Absolutely. And other ways of bringing other kinds of, of money, right, um, probably are a lot more promising than that. Right. So the contribution you've made about identifying how to muck about with the information flow is really valuable. Um, and I agree with you, there's tons of work about, quote, campaign finance. But 99% of that work is about limiting speech. Yeah. And my point is that from the perspective you've offered us, you see a, there's a really compelling reason to think about the other kind of campaign finance reform, which is about increasing speech. And so if you could liberate congressmen from worrying about raising large money from these, all these special interests, and you know, like Richard Painter has argued, or Bruce Ackerman and Ian Ayers have argued, give vouchers to everybody so that they could be funding from the bottom up, the dynamic and the incentives of these policymakers would change and enable the kind of reform that you're wanting, because they wouldn't be so tied to these particular interests. So it seems complementary. It doesn't seem to me to, in any sense, be in tension. Uh, I agree with that. Great. So um, let's start with questions. We can start right here. Yeah, I'm a, a support I'm happy to take polls. I'm a little confused about where actually you guys are coming from. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that that is part of your intention, perhaps. Uh, uh, I'm wondering, for example, if the book was funded by any particular interests, whether you're in favor of uh, the, the dismantling, uh, the deregulation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or whether you don't have a position on that. Uh, uh, because the way it, it, the, the books, presenting the book has been something like uh, regulation is the cause of our problems. And I happened to be at a conference, sociology conference, where I spoke with a, a young woman who had been funded by the Koch brothers over the course of years. And she said, typically at their conventions, they don't talk about oil. They talk about the need for deregulation. So, and I, you know, I mean, you, 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 you steamrolled over areas where you, you think deregulation would help growth. Uh, I had trouble writing them all down or remembering them. I noticed that uh, you, you don't think that uh, subsidization of the oil industry, for example, is, is that, uh, would you prefer that, that that be deregulated? That those that is that those subsidies be regulated out of existence. So uh, I'll leave it at there. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's uh, I'm just a little confused. Thanks. Um, so on on that point, uh, on the on the what regulations are we focusing on? Uh, I think there's a, a big when people talk about the problem of regulation or people talk about the need for deregulation, they're almost always talking about health, safety, environmental, worker protections that are imposing costs on existing businesses. Uh, and so the existing businesses say these costs are too high and we need regulatory relief. Uh, and the other side, uh, the people who, who support the regulations say these regulations are protecting consumers and workers the environment. And so deregulation is a reduction in protection for these important social goals. Uh, and so it's a very clear ideological battle. Uh, uh, on issue to issue, who's got the better argument depends on what specific policy. But in the big picture, the truth lies somewhere in between those, uh, in between the two contending sides. Um, 
Here, we're talking about a qualitatively different kind of regulation. These are regulations that confer benefits on existing businesses, usually by excluding competition. Uh, so this is... So in the case of intellectual property law, you're giving people temporary monopolies. In the case of occupational licensing, you can't do that job until you pass a licensing exam and pay a licensing fee. Uh, so these are, in zoning, it's a barrier to geographic entry. You can't move here unless you can afford this house, and you can't afford this house because we're not going to let anybody buy new, build, uh, anybody build new ones. Um, so uh, uh, I think... The alarm bells that go off in left-of-center minds when they hear the word deregulation uh, are a false alarm in this case because we're talking about something qualitatively different. Right. And, and I should also say, though, that we are trying to get people on the left to think differently about regulation, right? That is, there is a lot of regulation. Some of the, a lot of the regulations we talk about um, trace back uh, to the New Deal. There was an element in the New Deal that was what you might think was pro-cartelization, right? That was that was that was worried about competition. That thought competition was, was dangerous and problematic, and we wanted to um, to you know we think about the Civil Aeronautics Board, right? Was a classic example of New Deal regulation that was explicitly designed to prevent um, market entry, right? Um, now we got rid of some of that kind of regulation, which again is very different than the environmental worker safety, that kind of regulation, right? Again, because it's, it's industry-specific, right? It's not imposed across across industries, right? So as a consequence, you get this big disequilibrium of organization, right? And I think one thing we're trying to get people on the left to think about is that inequality is not just produced by the absence of state action, right? It's produced by the capture of the state by organized interests, um, especially where they can do so by uh, – in, in an environment where they don't have to fight back or, or make or make an argument, right? Again, especially if you look at finance fits that, intellectual property fits that, right? And that's the very, very top of the income spectrum, right? Um, how did those – that was not a natural market outcome, right? That was a result of market gaming and rigging, right? Um, now, so in part, I think, you know, at least my argument is being someone who's, who's always been a Democrat and considers himself a liberal – there has to be both a kind of anti-statist and a statist wing of, of at least the Democratic Party and of liberalism to be able to have a coherent vision of how you actually do something about the, the combined problems of inequality and slow growth. Regulation. So information dependence becomes much more acute when the law is more complex, more yeah. complicated. And there seems to be a, a, a huge secular trend to making it more complex. And there seems to be a lot of incentives for industry to make it more complex so that they become the experts, for judges or regulators to make it more complex because they're, especially in a revolving door economy, regulators have incentives to yeah. become experts on obscure areas. Judges have incentives. Um, how do you deal yeah, with that? In, in general, naughty anti-social behavior thrives in the shadows and in obscure. Uh, so, uh, so that's in obscure venues. Like, so for occupational licensing, generally there's a the, the state legislature passes a law that okay, we're going to have licensing of, of, of yoga instructors, and we're going to create the yoga licensing board, and they're going to regulate in the public interest. That's the end of the bill. Then all the action is with the regulatory board. Uh, so here is this regulatory board composed of people in the you know, yoga studios and 
uh, and, uh, and with almost no oversight from the government. So they're basically just acting as sort of a cartel. Uh, and, and who shows up at regulatory licensing board meetings? Nobody except the, uh, the, the industry. So just the obscurity of the decision-making venue is, a, is a, a kind of shadow in which bad actors can lurk. Likewise, complexity. Uh, so uh, intellectual property law, especially financial regulation. Uh, so uh, here's where this combination of sort of status quo bias and complexity really hit the road. Somebody wants to do something to change financial regulation, and these people uh, walk into the room. They're uh, immensely rich. They're immensely powerful. They're sitting across from 25-year-old, you know, uh, cousin of somebody who gave money to the campaign. Uh, so you've got <clears throat> they're intimidated, and then their message is: if you change this law, we're going to lose uh, every uh, everything is just going to pack up and move to London, and the U.S. economy is going to be devastated because we're going to ruin this as a financial center. Uh, so. And with the immense complexity of the laws, and, and we have you know seven different regulators, and nobody knows what the other ones are doing. It's it's just a it's it's a perfect environment for antisocial behavior. So that those combinations of obscure venues and the obscurity of the subject matter uh, really link up uh, to, uh, to to make policymaking vulnerable to, to going wrong. It always struck me that this was the genius in Dodd Frank that Dodd Frank would create this highly complex set of regulations or the aspiration for regulations and then expect many, many years of actual regulating, right. which would be pro uh, procedures that only Wall Street would be present in. So in the, in the details of drafting these forever and ever, ever regulations, you would create exactly this kind of obscurity. Uh, although, I, 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 just say, I, I, so I wrote a, a piece called Projocracy in America that was in National Affairs. It was explicitly designed to explain the prevalence of policy complexity. And there's a, there's a tendency to want to have explanations from design, right? So, so this exists the way it does because somebody designed it with a function in mind. And I think in some cases that's true. But I think if you actually were to go into the, you know, in the minute features of Dodd-Frank, you wouldn't necessarily find that it was that way because someone designed it with that intention. I think it serves that function, right? but not with that intention. And if that's the case, then you have to ask about structural incentives, and Brinkenway described it, right? One thing is it's hard to do things in the American system, right? So this is one consequence of separation of powers. We know from lots of work in historical institutionalism that the incentives in the American process are always towards layering rather than substitution, right? Putting new things on top of old stuff rather than replacing the old stuff, right? and that's just a formula for complexity. Um, but the other part I think that Brink described is once you have that and you've got a process where policymakers themselves are systematically starved of, of, of expertise, then you've got a really good formula for dominance by those who are able to uh, unpack or understand complexity. Just to say a, a word about uh, financial regulation and flesh out our argument a little bit. Um, so <coughs> I don't think – I think – uh, we backed into the incredibly complex uh, uh, system of regulation we have. It wasn't anyone's original intention. Uh, but what we what we ended up doing uh, was uh, that regulators were presented with an industry that relied very heavily on on, uh, on borrowing. Uh, so 
financial institutions completely different from every other industry in America in the extent to which they finance their activity with debt rather than with, with equity. So debt to assets ratios of 90, 95, 99 cents are commonplace in the financial industry. Uh, any, in, any other company in any other industry that was like that would be uh, would have been shut down or, uh, or would be in huge trouble. Um, so what this means uh, is that uh, when you're highly leveraged, that means uh, your returns are magnified when things are great, but it also means very uh, uh, small downturns in asset values can, can leave you insolvent. So the whole model of, of, of finance relying so heavily on debt is this high wire act. Uh, and, uh, and so our regulatory system is say, okay, let's have the high wire act, and then we're going to regulate everything you do to make sure that you don't do anything too risky when you're way up there 100 feet off the ground. And so just the, the whole choice of regulatory model pushes regulators into having to think of every crazy, just like you have to think of every crazy thing your toddler is going to do and, and try to child-proof your house. They've got a, they've got a you know, uh, financial crisis, the, uh, the, the, uh, the regulatory code, by thinking of every stupid risk that they could take and say, oh, you can't do that. And uh, as it turns out, the institutions are always one step ahead of the regulators. Uh, so a, a much easier solution is say, thou shalt uh, uh, finance with more equity, uh, and there are proposals to uh, right now it's five percent or thereabouts is regular. Uh, uh, could be up to twenty or thirty percent assets. Could be, could be. You have to be completely equity financed. Uh, there's, there's no reason on earth you couldn't do it. Like so, you could make a very simple but very radical change in the regulatory system that then would release you from the obligation of having to do this incredibly complex regulation because the the system wouldn't be so crisis prone as it is now. So. Uh, here's a, an area where I think not through intention, but but through sort of path-dependent choice of a regulatory model, that regulatory model then just locks you into this sort of crazy race of, of complex regulations versus even more complex regulatory arbitrage back and forth. I don't remember this being in the book, but is there a comparative story here? I mean, do other nations do it through equity or the we? Our original sin in, our, in uh, financial regulation is we had unit banking. We didn't allow any branching. So we had these local banks, and which meant they were very under-diversified, which meant that if there was any local downturn, that, that, that the banks would go under. Uh, so we had financial crises all the time. And then we created, because we were having financial crises all the time during the 20th century, we created a more and more elaborate safety net for, for them, which then, which then props up the, the instability of the system again with. Uh, most other systems didn't have didn't have the, the original sin. So, like Canada, hasn't had a financial crisis since 1840. Zero. Right? So, uh, and we've had a dozen. Oh, Thank sorry. you, oh, uh, Jeff Adelstein. Um, I am with the Consensus Building Institute and also working on several civic innovation projects, both regionally and nationwide. Um, two, I guess, two things. One is. Um, of the solutions that you mentioned, the first two are perhaps most intriguing to me, um, seem more broad scale than um, courts encouraging deliberation, at least that's all in my own mind. I'm wondering um, a couple of things, and, and I'm not sure whether you're particularly focusing just on the, the national congressional level or also looking at this the same way for state policymaking and legislative processes. Um, so I'm curious if there are any things happening um, because some of the folks I work with were really looking at state legislatures, you know, as the test beds of democracy, and what, what can we innovate there? Are there things happening at state levels that are um, encouraging? And, I, and I'm just sort of curious, on those solutions, what seems hopeful to you out there? 
that people can actually help move forward. Maybe it needs some help um, and can be a catalyst. And the other thing I'm wondering, and maybe this is a complex thing, is um, in thinking about comparisons, um, I know we're looking at the U.S. as a whole, but what about differences in growth and income inequality either geographically within the U.S. that we can learn from and or within different segments of the economy that we can learn from? Well, I'll so. take the first one and then maybe Frank can take the second one. Um, again, for me, the thing that I think is most interesting um, and most encouraging is at least some of the change you're starting to see around, uh, around zoning. So this is a case where the, the basic motor of this, right, is that in almost every neighborhood, especially in high-growth areas, the people who don't want stuff built show up, right? They show up at, at, at town, you know, council meetings where they're having zoning decisions. Um, and the people who do want it, right, who do, or at least would be benefited by more building, don't show up, right? Because in many cases, they don't even live in the jurisdiction that's making the decision, right? So. Just to use our example of where my little town right outside D.C., Tacoma Park, Maryland, right? Um, what we do in our town that restricts the amount of building affects the overall prices of the whole region, right? So there's all kind of people who live in Columbia, Maryland, and Frederick, and all those people who might rather live in town, right? But they're somewhere else. They're in some other political jurisdiction, right? And so... As a consequence, policymakers always know in our little town council that the path of least resistance is not doing anything, right? It's not allowing anything to get built, but then you get this aggregate consequence. So one thing you're starting to see is the growth of these YIMBY groups, yes, in my backyard groups, people who are actually just showing up at town council meetings and saying, yes, we actually do want to uh, have stuff built, right? And these are all still, I think, in their infancy, but they're just starting to learn what kind of new coalitions you can build. Coalitions in part on the, you know, people motivated by the public interest, but also figuring out what are the actual private or self-interest that can actually be made to be consistent with more building. So one thing we're learning, I'm actually involved in doing some of this stuff in my little town, right, is it turns out that young parents are often in favor of more building, right? Because we always say, you know, we stroller pushers need somewhere to push our stroller to, and all those places you're going to push your stroller to are going to be subsidized by the existence of apartment buildings on top of it, right? Um, that's just starting to go, right? That there, in many of those cases, there were small amounts of subsidy from foundations and other people, but many of those cases, they're just, they're created by the epidemic that's created by branding, right? So now there's a name, right? There's a thing, there's an argument somebody read about this, right? Um, and so then you're seeing all kinds of other jurisdictions starting to do this, and it's problematized a lot of behavior that people thought of as, you know, moral and, and good um, and starting to make it seem self-interested. And that's, I think, the dynamic in lots of these cases. How do you make the underlying self-interest in rent-seeking more visible, right, in, in order to create more conflict around those issues? So I think that's a good example of something where I think there's something encouraging. You raised the issue of, of geography and inequality. Could you flesh out that question again? Yeah, I, I'm wondering, um, has anybody looked at, um, are, are there differences in the different regions? Yeah, yeah, so what, what so the, the geographic inequality, I think, is a really important and, and woefully uh, underreported dimension of the, of the problem. Well, and let me just 
clarify, and I'm glad that you said that. I, I'm thinking not only, actually, I was thinking more of, but maybe you're saying something different, inequality between, between regions. Yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering, for instance, is there less income inequality in the Midwest oh. versus the Pacific I Northwest? See. Um, actually, both, now that you mentioned the other one, is, is it? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that you can learn. So big cities are going to be the most unequal places because they got a bunch of rich people and they got a bunch of poor people. So they're going to have the biggest spread of income, uh, whereas the sort of empty flyover country is going to be less unequal because it just doesn't have the highs and the lows. Um, but but the, the, the inequality across the country is, is, uh, is an enormous deal. So we, we tend to think of sort of, you know, the 1% versus all the rest of us, the, the people who have been high earners who have done, like, exceptionally well uh, in recent decades. And then more broadly, of uh, the kind of highly skilled versus you know, everybody else, the sort of top 20 or 30 percent, basically college educated people, the big gap, the wage premium for college education is since 1980 and all kinds of, uh, of other sort of social indicators now are bifurcating so that the college educated uh, are look more and more different from everybody else. Uh, um, but there is a geographic dimension to inequality, too, uh, that there are just enormous productivity differences uh, in different parts of the country and, therefore, enormous income differences. So that, uh, uh, and, uh, so that uh, for one arresting stat, uh, the, average, uh, the average high school grad in Boston makes 40% more than the average college grad in Boston. kind of geographic inequality should be, at least to some extent, self-liquidating. There's enormous incentives if you're living in some place where there's a, a, another place down the road where there's all, everything's happening and there's all the jobs and there's all the opportunity you have to move there. Uh, and that is how uh, American sort of economic geography, the history of American geography has worked. Uh, sort of new industries popped up and sort of new gold rushes happen and people rush there. So you have uh, Detroit, you know, growing by thousands of percent over a couple of decades as the auto industry grows up. Of course, the, the original gold rush to California. Um, but uh, that process, the self-liquidating part of inequality, is broken down because the places that, that would attract people, the places where the gold rushes are happening, have built moats around them in terms of exorbitantly high housing prices. Uh, so that during in the period 1995 to 2000, during the internet boom was the most incendiary period of economic uh, go-goism in my lifetime. Uh, more Americans moved out of the San Jose metro area than moved in during that five-year period. So you had a net, you had foreign immigration to make population go up, but net outflux of native-born Americans from from the gold rush. Why? Because of housing prices. Uh, so it should have been flooded with new residents. And, and, and it's not just the the highly skilled knowledge workers that benefit. So, uh, according to Enrico Moretti, a professor at Berkeley, uh, every percentage, in, percentage point increase in the percentage of college grads you have in a metro area increases college grad wages by 0.4%. So, you, you, the, the more smart people are, you're around, the higher your wages. Uh, but uh, that percentage uh, point increase in college grads into a 1.6% increase for high school grads. So, uh, uh, so you, the premium for being in a human capital hub is four times greater for the non-knowledge workers than it is for the knowledge workers, which means that <coughs> the opportunities that are being
squandered are ones that are being squandered mostly for people in the bottom half of the country. The housing prices are uh, bulk low enough in high-income people's budgets that even though the housing prices are inflated in San Francisco, you can still make more money moving out of San Francisco, but it, it doesn't work that way for, for, uh, for non-college workers. So, so th these housing prices filters act as regressive filters to let in the highly skilled and keep out everybody else who would be profiting disproportionately from being able to move in. So this is a way in which these moats are taking a, uh, a normal issue of geographic inequality and freezing it in place in a very dysfunctional way. So this, this part, you know, the, the, this part of the book, both this and the licensing, is um, really underdeveloped and, and it's a really great contribution. But I wonder, I, especially the housing crisis solution, it's really hard to think of the local solution to that problem. There's a really a kind of collection problem here. Like you say to your neighborhood, we're going to bring in a bunch of uh, housing and we'll lower the value of your house by 20%. Yes. <laughs> You're going to get kicked out. So, like, is there a federal intervention? Well, so, yeah, go ahead. So, really quickly, I mean, so it's not necessarily the case what you just described. That is, um, in housing, there's two ways you can increase the supply of housing in a jurisdiction, right? Again, just take, let's take Cambridge, which is a lot like Tacoma Park, which is a lot like Los Altos, which is, you know, a lot of these. Um, one, right, so you can say, oh, we need to be building more big big apartment buildings, right? If you do that, then on net, you're increasing the supply of housing, and all things being equal, you're pushing down the value of everybody's existing house, right? But there's lots of places in jurisdictions like this where people have large backyards, right, where people could be building accessory dwelling units that would be increasing the supply of housing, but by increasing the value of the property people already have, right? Now, that's a case where you can, you, can, you can mute some of this political conflict that's inherent in that issue. Um, David Schleicher at you know, Yale Law School, who's done, I think, the best writing on this. On their creation of housing, right? So you can say, look, there's a huge pool of resources, and it's only available for paper performance, right? When you build more, 20,000 more units, 30,000 more units, then you get all these resources for public goods. Same thing we could actually do at the federal level, right? That is, I'm suspicious of regulatory mechanisms that try and coerce people to force them to do things they really don't want to do, right? Sometimes you have to do those, but those often don't work. Giving people money to do things they're sort of at least met or about or are willing to do, right, seems like a much more effective way at least to get some of this, this going. And that's something where higher-level entities can, um, can actually have an effect on what they want. But, I mean, you do identify a real problem, which is the decision-making venue just uh, where uh, is a problem, right? And in general, if, uh, if there's a problem with the policy, there's a problem with the, with the process. So if, if your policy has gone bad, look at the process. And, and in zoning, it's not just that decisions that impact people nationwide are made in a metro area, and so a lot of people outside are, are excluded from participation. But in general, zoning decisions are made lot by lot, uh, so that even citywide interests, developers and folks with an interest in sort of a, a, a booming metro economy that, that would be fa in favor of more liberal rules for new housing, they don't care about this one lot. Uh, so the only people who care about this one lot are the immediate neighbors, and their interests are, uh, and the, all the effects on them are negative. It's congestion and hassle and, and, and disruption during construction, et cetera. So, uh, so it's not, they're not evil. Their interests are real, and they're, 
and they're you know, they're being negatively affected. The problem is everybody that has a positive stake in it is is out of the out, out of the doors. So. Uh, changing the venue uh, and broadening the scope of, of who gets involved is is often seems like a part of the solution. So, David Schlecker has proposed uh, having sort of citywide uh, housing budgets that you you vote on targets for housing is going to grow five percent a year, and until the target is met, there will be no downzoning. There will be no downzonings until that. So you have so. <clears throat> um, Right now, uh, in California, uh, this uh, bill uh, by uh, State Senator Scott Weiner um, to liberalize housing uh, development around transit areas. Uh, so, anywhere within a half mile of a of a subway stop, anywhere either quarter mile, either side of a major highway, uh, it's, it's they're going to take away the authority from the local authorities and move it up to the state. And uh, and so that this is this is where. Uh, that, like, from a green standpoint, obviously you want density near transit. You don't want people drive. You know that that's uh, so. Uh, and here is a. This is an area where, um, uh, what had been you know the Baptist and bootleggers coalition in favor of, of, of prohibition, right? The 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 Baptists have a high-minded reason for wanting prohibition. The bootleggers have a low-minded reason, but they get together and they they help each other out. Well. There's been a Baptist bootleggers coalition uh, on on NIMBYism and, and and opposing new housing. It's just the the, the bootleggers, the, the Baptists are bootleggers and they don't know it. Uh, so you have you know Marin County, uh, where everyone there thinks they're just impeccably progressive and high-minded and forward-thinking, and of course they oppose new development because construction is dirty and yucky and must be anti-green. Uh, and so as a result, they they have, after decades of, of their high-minded progressivism, produced, uh, first contributed massively to sprawl uh, by not allowing density, and second, produced uh, just about the most income and, and racially segregated county in the United States. So uh, there are ways in which people fool themselves into thinking they're on the Lord's side, and, uh, and in fact they're not. But that dissonance, that kind of cognitive dissonance that maybe, hey, maybe we are bootleggers, is really starting to dawn on people in a way that it, it hadn't as recently as just two or three years ago. So, Thanks. Um, my I'm sorry, could you identify yourself? Oh, sorry, yeah. I'm uh, Ali. I'm a postgrad at Oxford University. Um, I do some stuff on collective action, and I'm really interested in your argument. Uh, and, and my main question is why here and why now, basically? So um, in terms of why here, Manker Olson's been applied, his work's been applied internationally, political economic models kind of all over the world try to explain differentials in protection across countries, and a lot of the time they focus on uh, the size and density of firms in a sector or that type of thing. Um, my question is why, given that there are a lot of countries that are structurally, you know, economically similar to the U.S., um, given that Manker Olson's work is kind of not that specific, why is this happening here and not in other countries? And then also temporally, why is this happening now? I mean, we've had agricultural subsidies since the end of the Second World War. I mean, um, you know, Grapes of Wrath is basically a person lamenting against the ill effect of state capture, right? People not being able to eat because the agricultural industry is getting subsidies and making food too expensive to buy, right? So this has been happening for a long time. Um, what, I mean, you talked a little bit about housing prices as being a current issue that might affect that. But beyond that, why is this happening now, given that the forces that, you know, political economic models and Mike Olson would tell us is causing this have been around for a long time in the U.S. and in other countries that are not the U.S.? Yeah, well, so that's a 
complicated, it's very prescient. It's not a very complicated question. Um, one thing I think is that um, the illness that Olson describes is a progressive one, right? Um, that is, in the beginning, right, nobody quite knew, and this is, I think, an Olson story, right? Nobody quite knew how you get, get over the collective action problem, right? Um, but one thing is, right, that you get a spread of innovation, right? Innovation isn't always good, sometimes innovation is bad, right? Or it's neutral. Um, I think one thing you see, so the occupational licensing is an interesting case on this, right? Um, in the beginning, right, you know, outside of a very small number of occupations, people didn't really know that you could do this, right? That you could go and try and get an occupational license for a, um, an occupation in which there was no real significant harm to life or liberty, right, associated with the purchase of a product, right? Um, so somebody had to be the innovator, right? Somebody had to go to legislators and convince them and say, you know, I'm a florist, but how about licensing me, right? And somebody had to get over that, you know, that first sort of, you know, novelty, right? Um, one thing I think you see in some of these cases is the thing that allows people to get over the collective action problem is subsidy from the center. That, that process is entrepreneurial. So in, in, in many of these occupational licensing cases, it's not just that the florists all got together and said, hey, let's put on a show, right? It's that there was a national florist association who realized if we got licensing in the state, then we'd get a whole lot of members. So we're going to go and essentially front the cost of getting this because then, then we'll be able to, to organize it, right? So I think that's part of that process. And that would explain why you wouldn't get a lot for a long time and then suddenly you you a lot. So I think that's the beginning of some of that, right? And there's also again, there's spread of innovation, right? That some of these processes of rent-seeking spill over. The other thing again is, we're not describing rent-seeking in a sort of class undifferentiated way in the way that Olson did, right? We're, we're explaining why you got an expansion of protectionist regulation among the advantaged. Right. That's the real innovation of the last 40 years. In many ways, downscale rent-seeking is in decline. Right? If you look at that's in one way of understanding unions, right? Again, this is why the term rent-seeking should at least be somewhat normatively neutral, right? Or you, you can think about how you feel about unions, right? But there's certainly been a decline in barriers to entry in labor markets as a result of decline in, in unions, but in other areas that affect the, the downscale. So the real question is, why is it that the wealthy have gotten better at protecting their status, right? Um, and I think part of that is the decline of other countervailing influences, right? Um, the, the overall political agenda used to be more dominated by unions. They soaked up more of that sort of energy about what was on the, the political, their political agenda. Um, uh, so I think that, that's a significant part is the decline of unions and the increase of this other kind of rent-seeking is probably in some way we didn't, weren't able to figure out um, uh, connected, but also just the explosion of, of wealth as I think spilled over into political organization that's allowed the wealthy to dominate the political agenda in a way that those at the bottom. On comparatively uh, uh, what was happening in other countries, don't know, didn't didn't write that book. So, but what I what I know a little bit about is that the U.S. isn't. Uh, at least in the policy domains we look at, some of them is by no means unique. So any 
country that's a major financial center has the same general kind of regulatory problems we do. Uh, as far as uh, and intellectual property is, the, the, they've, they've uh, we borrowed a lot of stuff from Europe. Originally, they were sort of the original uh, innovators on a lot of this stuff, and, and we were the scofflaws, and then we got their religion. Uh, so they started this problem. And, then, and now we've exported it through trade agreements to all the rest of the world. So uh, we have been the mechanism of transmitting it to, to everywhere else. Uh, on the housing issue, and particularly like the issue of the coasts versus the rest of the country, I mean, the UK has that on steroids with London versus the rest of the country. Um, so these problems are these these policy dysfunctions are, are not unique to the United States. Although I do, I do think on, on the zoning is an interesting one, right? That um, most countries don't have zoning decisions that are made as locally as the United States does, right? Again, you know, it's hard to break about this, right? Japan seems to keep tearing down housing and building new stuff all the time, right, to, uh, to sort of to take advantage of the fact of where, that people are, are wanting to move there. And they seem to do that somewhat unsympathetically, right? They, they don't have a lot, you know, they, they're perfectly comfortable telling people they just got to move and they're going to build something new, right? Um, I mean, London is an interesting example because that is a case where you've had explosive um, increases in, uh, in cost without the corresponding increase in, in housing. And again, this is another issue that's cross-ideological, right? The Tories are very bad on those issues, right? The conservatives are very bad, although they're, they're somewhat um, divided. And that's also, I think, because, at least my understanding, is those decisions are somewhat more decided by councils. Councils have a lot more influence over those decisions in Britain than you would see in other kind of advanced countries that you may have more influence. Yeah, in the back. But this country does have a history of, uh, at, the lo at federal level, at the local level, uh, designing some laws and regulations to help maintain inequality. Um, Professor, well, anyway, the color of law illustrates the idea that uh, the government itself, the Federal Housing Authority itself, designated regulations really to keep people segregated and to red zones. Uh, areas where minorities were living and all of these other things. So, um, you have anything to say about that? Well, that's so uh, zoning. The, the sort of the, the uh, high-minded theory behind zoning is is to deal with nuisances, to deal with incompatible uses of property, to make sure that you don't have a slaughterhouse next to a residential neighborhood, and or you don't have some you know a paper mill next to uh, you know a kindergarten. So, just to deal with externalities and make sure that that uh, that you don't have incompatible land uses. But that's that's not why zoning happened. Zoning happened because of suburbanization. Uh, so the first zoning ordinance was like 1916. It really took off in the 20s with the takeoff of suburbanization. And then especially once the car got going, uh, zoning got going. And always the motive was exclusionary. We want to keep people out of our suburbs. Uh, so uh, And so always uh, on a micro level, uh, zoning was exclusionary. Within that metro area, we're going to keep certain people out of our leafy, tony suburbs. Uh, but now the effect, has, the exclusionary effect, has gone nationwide, that we're now, uh, these laws are, are inhibiting the total amount of housing constructed in a metro area and are therefore inhibiting migration patterns across the whole country. It's interesting that when, you know, the third part of your book where you're talking about legal interventions or changing in changes in jurisprudence, 
When I read it the, fir the first time, I was most skeptical of that because my life as a constitutional law professor is watching these efforts blow up. Um, but there, there are a couple interesting moments where the court could have gone a different way that would have had a dramatic effect on both of these issues. So the zoning decision could easily have gone the other way, and the assertion of the right of property independent of zoning could have protected the competition that would have worked. And the other one is, um, is the uh, occupational licensing um, could have pushed the other way if you know, the early slaughterhouse case had gone the other yes. way. If, yeah. if you had affirmed a constitutional right to the ordinary callings that yeah. couldn't be regulated except in very narrow ways, you could have imagined creating a jurisprudential bulwark against that type of and so on the on the reform front, you're seeing now the most obvious low-hanging fruit for states is to set up a commission, find the most you know, 13 most risible occupations that are being being uh, regulated and, and deregulated. Um, but those are usually the ones that have been licensed uh, subject to licensure most recently, and they have the least impact. And uh, the real damage is being done by the doctors and lawyers. Uh, but uh, but. Sort of more radical approaches. There are there are, you know, model laws that uh, Minnesota tried it, uh, uh, tried to push this forward a little bit, which is set up legislatively a kind of right to right to work, uh, right to your to a job, and that government uh, can't interfere with that unless uh, unless there's health or safety at stake, and unless there are no more you know you're choosing the least intrusive means. So basically, set up sort of some sort of strict review standard legislatively. Uh, whether that will take off or not, we'll see. Yeah, so I'm going to say I'm generally more skeptical than Frank. This is, I think, that yeah. the, the, we haven't disagreed on almost anything in the book except this particular question about whether you can come up with standards that describe whether something is or isn't a uh, legitimate area for, for regulation. I think the larger argument we have in the book, uh, which is significant for an institution on democratic governance, is um, we think that this is a problem um, that's going to be solved not by banning government from areas. That's the typical libertarian solution to say, oh, we need to completely draw this out of out of bounds for democratic governance. But lots of these are by bad democratic design, right? It's bad democratic design about where decisions are being made. It's not whether government has a, uh, a legitimate influence on this or has to, and we're not trying to second guess in any cases what the right decision to be made is, just that you're not get, you're definitely not going to get the right decision if you design that basic machinery of democratic governance wrong. If you put the decision in the wrong place, if you don't have significant uh, enough incentives for uh, um, uh, balanced organization, if policymakers don't have this, the right incentives to produce the information that they need. And so all these things, I think, are about getting people to start thinking in a different way, that democracy is not just allowing whatever happens to ha have you know happens to occur when you have a um, a uh, elected decision making process, right? Um, democracy is a, a result of well designed institutions that channel democratic organization in the right way. Yeah. Um, so we're at the end, but why don't we take one more question and then. Uh, my name is Stan Anderson. I'm a student at the business school. Uh, this has been a great talk. I've really enjoyed it. And um, the, the the point you made earlier on about how the financial sector draws a lot of talent without creating value, 
that, that's a conversation that we've had over there as well. And, and, and there's recognition of it. I'm just not sure exactly what the future holds for it. One thing that we've talked about... For a couple of years there, 2009, 2010, things were looking a little different uh, as far as the percentage of HBS people going into finance. Well, it's going back that way. So uh, one of the things that we've talked about is you know, there are these moments around traditional banking, kind of being, you know, information, access to information, trust, uh, access to uh, chip capital, that sort of thing. And we've seen that stuff um, changing with fintech and technology in general. And I'm just curious what you see as those trends um, as a way of maybe getting around uh, sort of this, this regulatory issue and maybe um, either causing more problems or, or hopefully sort of um, balancing that a little bit in the future. Yeah, my, my, I, I'm, I'm not super knowledgeable about, uh, about fintech. My worry is that unless we change the basic rules, we just have a new group of regulatory arbitrageurs. Uh, and so uh, it, because the, the system is so dysfunctional at such a deep level, uh, then, then uh, like, any, like any incremental regulatory change that looks like it could be removing a distortion here could end up being amplifying a distortion there. Uh, new players into the system could be busting things up and, and making things, pushing things in a better direction, or they could just be the latest guys to discover this gravy train and get on it. And so I, I don't know. But I worry uh, that the, the regulatory structure is, is so wrong at such a deep level that I'm, I'm not sure new entrants are going to solve the problem. Okay. Please join me in thanking You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.